the seats in front of you. There's some hard copies. If you want to uh, follow along, the words will be on the screen. That way it's new to you. However you want to get there, Acts chapter 7, as we uh, continue walking through this New Testament book of Acts, little by little. Here we're towards the end of chapter 7. Uh, so I invite you to find it there. My name is Matt, by the way. I'm pastor here, and we're just so glad you're with us. As Wendy said, we're so glad uh, that you are here with us at FBC. So we continue our worship uh, with a time in God's Word together. We do this every week. Uh, so I'll let you find Acts chapter 7. Verse 44 is where we're going to be, where we're going to be starting, I should say. Uh, pastor J.D. Greer wrote a book titled Not God Enough, and the subtitle was this, uh, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. Again, not God enough. Why your small God leads to big problems. And this book kind of captured a similar idea uh, from the book from the 90s. Maybe you've heard it before called Your God is Too Small. Where the premise of the book is that exactly that. If your view of God is too small, it's going to lead to some really big problems in your life. Part of the tension there, though, is that Greer unpacks in this book how us Americans and Westerners typically really like to have a God in some ways that is small. Because we want to keep our God uh, manageable and predictable and controllable. Uh, that kind of God feels safe to us because we understand a God like that. And we don't have to worry about God disagreeing with us or offending us or disappointing us or confronting us, right? If God is nice and small and manageable, things will be a little smoother for us, we sometimes think. Again, the tension, though, is that though we often prefer a God like that and operate sometimes with a view of God like that, actually a small view of God is a root of so many of our problems. Greer would argue that almost all of our large spiritual problems like doubt and apathy and insecurity stem from a view of God that is too small. In his book, he quotes a British philosopher Evelyn Underhill saying, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. I think we could add to that, if, if God is not big enough, excuse me, if God is too small, he would not be big enough to capture our hearts and compel us to live a lifetime of devotion to him. If our God is not big enough, then he will not anchor our security and our confidence and our hope in a uh, devastatingly exhausting and scary world at times. If our God is too small, then he cannot rescue us. He cannot give us hope no matter future circumstances. If our God is too small, it will lead to a host of problems. The good news this morning is that the God of the Bible is no small God. The God of heaven is no small, comfortable, controllable God that fits in your pocket. Uh, we see this big God on display in Acts chapter 7 this morning. That's part of Stephen's point. Spoiler alert is part of what he's saying is God is bigger than you think he is. Context, just a little bit for where we've been. We're reading the book of Acts. We've been in chapter 7 for a little while now, and uh, the apostle Stephen, he's been doing ministry, preaching the gospel, telling everybody about Jesus, and the religious leaders and some of the people in Jerusalem there are threatened by this 
They don't like Stephen. They don't like the message of Jesus. They want to get rid of Stephen. And so they cook up some false charges. They seize him, arrest him, bring him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the the highest uh, Jewish court of the land. And he's on trial, basically, for his life. We've been here for, this is going to be the fifth week now in uh, chapter 7, seeing Stephen's response. Five weeks! We've been taking our sweet time uh, because there's a lot to see as we go. But so this is kind of the the closing arguments from Stephen before we see how the council responds. His speech is mostly the entire book, or excuse me, chapter 7 in the book of Acts. And he's taken the scenic route, we could say. As if you've been with us for a few weeks, you've seen how he looks at the Old Testament and he tries to zoom out a little bit and help the council, help uh, the Sanhedrin who are judging him, saying, hey, I want you to understand how the message of Jesus actually fits into the story that God has been telling all along. And so all these Old Testament figures, whether it's Abraham or Joseph or Moses or the tabernacle we're going to read about, all of that really was pointing us forward and preparing us to see and receive Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to see his dramatic conclusion. He's going to land the plane, essentially, for us. Remember, though, before we unpack some of his response, I just want you to remember the charges that have been brought against him, like why he's in such trouble in the first place. If we rewind a little bit to chapter 6, kind of towards the end there, we see verse 13 of chapter 6, and it tells us a bit of what was going on. They, his opponents, produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed the message to us. So they're saying, hey, this Stephen guy and the message of Jesus, uh, it all stands against the law of Moses. He's speaking against the law, the customs of Moses. I mean, they're uh, the Torah, the, their holy scriptures. They're saying this Stephen guy and the message of Jesus goes against all of that. Not only that, but he's a threat to this place, they say. When they talk about this place, they're talking about the temple, uh, the center of, of life and worship in Jerusalem. So this Stephen, he's a lawbreaker. He doesn't care about the law of Moses. Uh, he's a threat to the temple. These are their charges. And again, for them, for, for devout first century Jews, I mean, these are, again, death sentences, basically. If he's a blasphemer, if he's a lawbreaker, if he has uh, done some of these things they say he's done, he's in big, big trouble. Now, to be fair to the Sanhedrin, to be fair to the the high court and some of their concerns, I want us to understand just how jarring these claims would be. I want us to understand just how big these claims were that the followers of Jesus were making, uh, specifically about the temple. I'm, I'm not on their side Okay, I'm not on Team Sanhedrin here. I'm on Team Jesus. But I want to, to try and understand a little bit of where they're coming from because that's going to help us understand what to make of these verses for our day. I want you to see why this is such a big deal. Think about, here are some of the claims Christians were making about the temple that for them were just pff, radical. First, they're claiming, followers of Jesus are claiming that Jesus himself is the new temple. So there's a new way to view and understand the temple for 
the Jews. In John chapter 2, you might remember, Jesus spoke of his body as the temple that would be destroyed and then rebuilt in three days as he was speaking of his resurrection. We also see in, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus saying, that, hey, in my arrival, something greater than the temple is here. Essentially saying, hey, the temple was great and fine and important and served its purpose, but something better, bigger, greater is actually here that we've been waiting for all along, and that person is Jesus. In other words, Christians believe that this Jesus is the new place where people would go and meet with God. Right? Rather than God's presence being most clearly known and displayed in the temple in Jerusalem, it was most clearly revealed, and the presence of God is most known in the person of Jesus. We have been coming to God on the basis of sacrifices offered in the temple. We approach God now on the basis of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So saying, don't worry about a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. Simply, wherever you are, turn your heart and your eyes to the Lord Jesus. Pastor R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. So if you want to worship the living God, if you want to be in a relationship and in the very presence of God, you don't have to go to the temple, you go to Jesus. Now, even more, there's, there's another layer to this. Because early Christians, the early church was claiming that the church, the gathered group of believers, was also the new temple. Okay, so it uses this language of, as we think about our ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology, what is the church? Um, who are we as a church? Uh, Ephesians 2, look at the language it uses. Describing the church, it puts it this way. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the claim, do you see, is that followers of Jesus, as individuals, we are like stones in a building. We're individual stones or bricks. Look to your neighbor and say, you are a stone. Okay, you didn't. All right, sometimes you listen to the pastor, sometimes you don't. It's okay. You're, as a believer, if you're in Christ, the language is you are a brick or a stone built together into this new building, not a physical building, but we as the people of God form this temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. So God dwells within uh, the church. As the people of God gather, God's presence is there by His Spirit. So where is God present and at work by His Spirit in the world? It's not the temple. It's actually where the church gathers. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where God is present. And so do you see how the apostles are like articulating these major shifts in understanding what it meant to be the people of God. I mean, the Jews said God dwells in the temple, and that's where you go to worship. Now the apostles are saying you actually must turn to Jesus and, and worship him. That's how you worship the one true God. And God dwells among his people by the power of the Spirit. So part of his argument is trying to say, hey, guys, guys, temple is good. Served its purpose. Not against the temple, not anti-Jerusalem, but God's always been bigger than the temple. 
God's always been bigger than just Jerusalem or the Holy Land. God isn't limited in the way that you think he is. So, with that in mind, look at what he's doing here in verse 44 as he continues. He says, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land, that's the tabernacle, until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon, here it is, who built a house for him. So he's talking about a tabernacle in verse 44, which was a, a tent. It was like a tent in the wilderness that the people would, would build, and that was essentially where God would dwell among his people, where Moses could go and meet with God. It was a temporary. They were in this basically 40-year camping trip. No thank you. Good night. Wouldn't want to be there, but they're in the wilderness before they enter the land, so they don't build a permanent temple structure because they're moving around. Um, so they have this temporary structure, a tent, the tabernacle, where God, God dwelled and where they would meet with God and Moses would meet with God and so on. And they said, hey, that was the setup. That was where God dwelled with his people, essentially, uh, through the time of Joshua. It was with Moses, then Joshua, up until the king, time of King David. And David said, hey, God, I want to build you a house. And God's like, no, thanks. Uh, Solomon will build a house for me. So you just hold tight. Solomon will build it. And then Solomon is the one who builds the temple the physical structure there in Jerusalem. But here, here's his point in talking about tabernacles and tents and camping and temples. Here it is, verse 48. It says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Notice what he's saying. Hey, tabernacle was fine, served its purpose. For a season, we had the tabernacle. That's where God dwelled. Okay, great. And then, then we had the temple. Solomon built it. Great. But God does not live in houses made by human hands. Even in the temple, you can't contain the God of heaven in a structure built by brick and mortar and human ways. And he quotes Isaiah 66, where God himself says, Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. Kind of a cool image, right? God on a throne in, in heaven. He made, our little earth just kicks his feet up on it. Like he, he owns it all. He's bigger than it all. He made it all. It all belongs to him. And so he's saying it's kind of silly, actually, don't you think, to think that you can contain the living God, the creator God, the very God of heaven in this little structure. He made it all with his hands. He made everything. And yet we think with our hands we could build a little structure to contain him. How silly. Saying, guys, your God is too small. And so think about just some takeaways real quickly about what this tells us about God. If we were to do theology proper and just look at the doctrine of God, these verses remind us that God is described as creator. Right? Created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. By his hands, all things were made. It all belongs to him. Similarly, we see in this description that God is omnipresent. 
He's everywhere. He's not bound by a structure or one particular place or location like God. He's right here in this region, but he's not over here. No, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And so he's saying God has always been bigger than the temple. The temple was temporary. So think about where is God present and at work? In his little survey of the Old Testament, remember, he's like, hey, remember Abraham? When God spoke to him and called him to go and leave and go to a new land that the Lord would show him, he's saying, where was that encounter? Like when God had this encounter with Abraham, where was Abraham? He wasn't in the temple. He wasn't in the land. He was far off. And yet God met him there. Further, when God called Moses at the burning bush, right, Exodus chapter 3, and he said, this is holy ground. The holy ground he was speaking of wasn't the temple. It wasn't even in the land. He was, no, far off. And God met him there. And now in Jesus, something greater than the temple is here. He's going to say, guys, your God is too small. He's everywhere. So, again, in, in sympathy to the Sanhedrin, if we can kind of enter their world for just a moment, realize what a massive paradigm shift this would be. Say, hey, this is how we understand life with God and life as the people of God, and how we understand the scriptures. And now this Jesus is forcing us to rethink some of these core convictions and assumptions. It requires a paradigm shift. And the word that we use for that often, the biblical word for this, is repent. It would require repentance. It would require the people to repent, which means what? To turn to turn around, to turn from one thing to another way. And not only a change of direction, but a change of mind. I'm going to change uh, how I think about life and the world and about God. Repentance. It's the, this radical reorientation to life. Some of us think of repentance, one, that it's a bad thing, and we shouldn't talk about it because it's too crusty, or two, it's like this really small, narrow thing, like you, you know, kicked a cat, and so repent, and don't do that anymore. But it's like this radical reorientation where I'm going to like rethink uh, all of my assumptions about life and I'm going to center them now on the person of Jesus. Following Jesus requires repentance. In the first century it did for these Jews. They're like, wow, man, this is really reorienting the way I think about God and the temple and where God is and what it means to follow God. In the same way, following Jesus in the 21st century requires Repentance. No one can approach Jesus and remain unchanged. We can't just come to Jesus and keep going the way that we are going and living life the way that we've been living life and assume that he just comes right along and pats us on the back in the direction we were already heading. It's like When anyone comes to Jesus, no matter your background or assumptions or your political leanings or whatever, we're all going to be confronted and Jesus is going to say, hey, actually that, whatever that view, that behavior, that thought, whatever, is out of line with me and my kingdom. And so we're going to have to clean some things up around here. For us, some of us are going to have to repent of our small-minded view of the world. Some of us, we have us and our little story at the center of everything. And we have to repent and say, actually, no, there, there's, there's a big God that we serve. And it's about his glory and his name 
And he's the hero of the story. And yes, I have a part to play in that, but I'm not the hero. Some of us are going to have to repent of our belief that life has no meaning or purpose. Right? In the modern world, we soak up these assumptions that uh, there's no bigger story. It doesn't really matter what I do or where I do it. There's no meaning or purpose. It's only what I make of it. And in following Jesus, we're called to repent, to actually rethink our assumptions about life and say, actually, no, we believe as followers of Jesus that the world is full of meaning and purpose, and your life matters, and what you do with your life matters. And there's good kingdom work that God has for you to do. God's writing an amazing story that we each individually get to be part of. Some of us are going to have to repent of our casual approach to Jesus. Where we say, Jesus is a good human teacher. He said some great things. Take him or leave him. There's many paths up the top of the mountain. He's one among many. You have to actually say, no. Jesus is not just one among many. Instead, we're called to bow and surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior and King and center our whole life upon him. There's no one like him. So repentance is not a punitive word, not a crusty, grumpy, old traditional word. It's this invitation to rethink how you've been living and how you think about life and how you assume life with God works and instead focus and reorient all of it around the person and message of Jesus. So Stephen has this one last plea about, don't you see how big God is? And, and then he's going to land the plane. And like, all right, we've done our little Old Testament survey course, okay? We talked about Abraham, and we talked about Joseph, and we talked about Moses, and we talked about the old tabernacle, and we've talked about the temple a little bit, okay? So we're all feeling pretty good about our understanding of the Old Testament. And now we're going to bring it home and land the plane for our dramatic conclusion, And as we're getting ready to do that, before we read his words, um, realize this. In ancient culture, uh, if someone was an orator or giving this big, fancy speech, defending themselves before a council, if they were on trial for something, it would often be common to end the speech with some kind words praising the judges or, um, or at least humbly leaving things in their hands. Okay, saying something to the effect of, uh, hey guys, these clowns cooked up these charges and brought me before you on trial. You've heard all the evidence. Surely, respectfully, counsel, you are wise and godly men who know enough to discern the truth. You're going to do the right thing. I trust you in this. I leave it in your hands. Do we think Stephen is going to end his speech this way? And I realize I set up the question in such a way as to lead you to believe. Yeah, he doesn't exactly do that. Look at how he starts in verse 51. Here it is. Approaching the runway. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Speaking of Jesus. 
You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Not very gentle. Stephen saves his harshest words for last. These are basically first century expletives. I mean, if you were listening to this, you're like, cover the children's ears. This is uh, some, you, you couldn't hardly think of more searing statements and condemnation. You're stiff-necked, have hard hearts, you're stubborn, though externally you look like you're all spiritual and religious and got things all right with God, internally your hearts are closed off to the things of God. Not only that, he says this kind of jab, you're just like your ancestors. You're just like your fathers before you. Now, if you're in a heated argument with your spouse and you hear your spouse say, you're just like your father, or your spouse say, you're just like your mother, um, usually that's not a compliment, right, in that setting with that heat. That's essentially what Stephen is saying. You're just like your ancestors before you. They rejected the prophets. You rejecting now the Holy Spirit. You've betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus the Savior. And wasn't that our theme for several weeks? Don't reject the rescuer. That's his big point. There's been this pattern, this theme throughout Scripture where God raises up a deliverer, a rescuer, like Joseph, like Moses, but they're rejected. And the people disobey. And now this cycle has happened again. But this time with Jesus, the very Son of God. And he was rejected. And he was killed on the cross. But we know, if we zoom out just a little bit more, like earlier, that what was meant by humans for evil, God intended for good. And in God's perfect plan of salvation, we know that Jesus going to the cross was part of it. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He lived to die, but the people had not repented and trusted yet in Jesus. And then here's his kicker in verse 53. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not broke the law. So he's saying, hey guys, I'm on trial here because you're saying I broke the law of Moses. And you're saying that I'm a blasphemer and I'm a threat and I'm a lawbreaker. But you're the ones who have not obeyed the law. He's, he's you know, spoiler alert, um, surprise, I'm turning this back on you. You're the lawbreakers, not me. That's what he's saying. You think I'm on trial before you? Actually, you guys are the ones on trial before the living God because you've broken his law. And so next week, we're going to look at how the council, how the Sanhedrin responds after this big, long speech. Hint, not well. Okay, so you um, don't read ahead. You can, I mean, you can, it's weird for a pastor to say don't read the Bible. Don't read, but you, you can read ahead if you want to, but if you want to be surprised, read it fresh. Next week, we're going to jump into it. Some of you are already reading it. That's okay. Um, but before we see how they respond, I think we're kind of left to sift through this and say, okay, we've, we've heard him land the plane, this big rebuke here. And, and it makes us think, hey, we don't want to commit the same errors and mistakes that the first century leaders did, right? Like, we don't want to be guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit and missing Jesus, the Savior, and having hard hearts. And so, so 
the question this morning is, is then, is what sort of faith, what sort of convictions is Stephen's speech pointing us towards? If we were to say, okay, we want to do this right, Stephen, we don't want to miss what you're saying about God in Acts chapter 7. What sort of worship, what sort of faith, what sort of response would you have us give? Because again, things are changing from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? The new covenant now built on Christ is here. And so, so how do we put all this together? What, what are some of the theological convictions from Stephen's speech that we want to end with? Uh, there, there's a theologian author named Michael Reeves who short, uh, wrote a short book called Gospel People. Really good book, not too long, where he unpacks um, these core doctrines and essential convictions of the gospel. If we're to be evangelicals in the truest sense of that word, gospel people, people built on the foundation of the gospel, what are some of the core convictions? And in his book, uh, he used three R's to describe that, three R's that are essential convictions for us as gospel people. And so I'm just going to steal those or borrow those. We're going to borrow those three R's because I think they're actually the same R's that are on display in Stephen's speech. So here there are three essential convictions. First, revelation. Stephen tells us throughout his speech that we are to look to how God has revealed himself in his word. So it's the doctrine of revelation, not meaning the book of revelation, the last book in the Bible, but the doctrine of revelation. I mean, the very word of God. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so notice that Stephen, throughout his speech, um, he's not standing before the Sanhedrin saying, hey guys, lighten up. Okay, a lot of opinions out there in the world. Who's to say who's right and who's wrong? Brave new world here. Believe whatever you want. This Jesus thing is pretty special, so why don't you just go along with it? It's all love. It's all good. Believe whatever you want. Come on, make more room for these views in your heart. He's not doing that. He's not saying, hey, it's just a free-for-all, brave new world. Believe whatever you want to believe. Notice, he's saying, no, guys, look at who God is and what God has said in his word. That's the basis of his whole argument. Guys, look at the scriptures. And look at how actually following Jesus makes sense in light of who God is and what God has said in his word. So he wants us to be people rooted in the revelation of God. We are to be, you put it simply, people of the book. People of the book, trusting the spoken in his inspired and inerrant word. He has revealed who he is and what he expects of us. And we can come to know these things from Scripture. And so, a core conviction for us as followers of Jesus is we need to uh, get accustomed to asking the question in our life, what does God's word say about this? Like for every Christian... Any follower of Jesus, that should be a filter that we have built into our hearts and minds and lives. Is we say, whenever we're approaching an idea, um, something going on in the world, we want to say, is there something that God has to say about this? And as we're making decisions, and as we're building our lives and our worldview, our determining uh, and our directing question in our heart is not primarily, what do I want to be true? Or what do I feel is right and true? Or what sounds good to me? 
That's what has God said in his word. That should be a core conviction for every Christian. We are to be people of revelation, people of the book. Second, we are to be people of redemption. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Remember the song? There is a Redeemer. The word of message, message has been all about pointing us to Jesus the Redeemer. How the, the Word of God, the revelation of the Father in the Scriptures has prepared us to receive Jesus the Son, our Redeemer. He has saved us, delivered us, healed us, forgiven us through His death on the cross. And so the heart of our faith is not about what you have to go and do in order to get right with God. It's not about you jumping through the right religious hoops and bringing to God your polished resume of good works. No, instead it's about what Jesus has done for you. If Jesus has redeemed us, we're saying that it's not by my own strength I've cleaned my life up. It's not by my own strength I've I've brought myself into freedom. No, we say I needed a Savior. And Jesus is the one who brought me from death to life. Jesus is the one who brought me from slavery to freedom. Jesus is the one who took me as a broken man or a broken woman and he healed me. And he brought me home and he called me his son or he called me his daughter. So the doctrine, again, is, is justification by faith. We're justified, we're made right with God, declared righteous before God by faith. It's by works. Simply God's mercy and grace given to us through faith. So if you hear nothing else this morning, nothing else, I pray that you would hear this, that the God of heaven knows you and loves you and made a way for you to be brought back home into his family. He made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins, to be cleansed from whatever you've done and wherever you've been. And he did this through sending his son to die on a cross for you and for me. And so if we would only look to the Savior, cast our eyes to Jesus, and place our faith in him, he forgives us and calls us his own, and he brings us home. So we, those sinners, though worthy of judgment, can be brought home as beloved sons and daughters, declared righteous, because of Jesus' work. So we're people of revelation, we're people of redemption, and the third R is we're to be people of regeneration. And this one is only hinted at here at the end of the passage, but you see Stephen talking about how his accusers always resist the Holy Spirit. Saying, you have hard hearts, and what's implied here is that what we need to have is the Holy Spirit do a work, do a miracle in our hearts. And the doctrine of regeneration is that the Spirit of God will take us, and though we are dead, He will make us alive. It's the language of John 3, of a new birth. And He gives us new hearts and replaces our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And so the Holy Spirit indwells believers and empowers believers and indwells the church to be the church. And so instead of resisting the Holy Spirit, we are to walk by the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says to keep in step with the Spirit, 
to be filled with the Spirit. So do you realize, believer, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you have the very power and presence of God dwelling within you by His Spirit. So as we worship and connect and grow and go, we're not sent out into the world uh, to live a godly life in our own strength or power as if we could. No, we're to go, but we don't go alone. We're empowered by the Spirit of God. And the Word of God says that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we can, can know and sense that we are children of God because of the Spirit that dwells within us. And so some of us, maybe we feel just stuck this morning. We're saying, I don't know if I have the power to live the kind of life that God wants me to live. I don't know if I can shake this addiction or change this uh, destructive pattern in my life. Or I don't know if I'll be able to restore this broken relationship or, or be the man or be the woman that God wants me to be. And if that's us, we simply need to surrender. Say, Father, I realize I've come to the end of myself. I don't have what it takes to live the life you've called me to, and so I need not only the forgiveness of your son, but also the power of your spirit to fill me and lead me in your ways. Next week, we're going to see, again, how the council responds to all this. This morning, we're left with a simple invitation to consider how we will respond to all this.